Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Monash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest. He's a syndicator. He's an apartment owner all the way from Erie, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Jason Pirro. Thank you for having me, Victor. I really appreciate being a guest on your show, and I look forward to our conversation. And thank you for all the value that you uh, you put out there to your listeners. You really have a great a great platform, and, and appreciate being here. Great to have you here. So, Jason, you've been investing in real estate for a number of years. You've built a sizable portfolio. Why don't you give us a brief backstory and what your journey has been to this point in real estate? Sure. Almost twenty years ago, about nineteen years ago, my wife and I started buying smaller. Uh, apartment buildings, you know, duplexes, four units, that that type of thing, while working a day job. And the goal was to build that up to a, a point where where we would be able to leave our day jobs. And we both worked in medical sales, and so we had pretty good W two positions. She left her job in 2010. I left mine in 2012. At that point, we had about 300 units. We have grown that considerably since then. So we own quite a bit just ourselves with no partners. And then we've also syndicated and JV'd a handful of deals over the past few years and all pretty much primarily in our, in our market of Erie, Pennsylvania or the surrounding areas in the county. There's no question that real estate is a hyper-local business. And when I say hyper-local, I mean block by block. It doesn't mean that you have to necessarily invest in your home community, but you've chosen to do that. Talk to me a little bit about that choice. Is it just because you understand the market or because the market fundamentals really support that level of investment? I, I, it's it's probably the uh, most basic, un, unsexy decision that I made when I was starting out and I I was looking into real estate as, as an investment. You know, I saw a just your old school mom and pop landlords that had maybe 20, 30, 40 units. And, and, and I didn't know any different. And as we grew our portfolio and, and started seeing what other people were doing, at the time, I wasn't thinking big enough. And I said, well, why would I go and buy you know, a couple properties in Pittsburgh? You know, I didn't really know much about the syndication method or, or dealing with partners and investors and things like that. So, so that's all I knew early on. But as, as that's evolved, and we started syndicating a few years ago and, and doing some joint venture deals, there was still a reasonable amount of runway left in our market as far as properties that have a good value that we believe will appreciate you know, modestly over a 5, 10, or 15-year period, but also provide cash flow. So for bringing investors into a deal, we're not going to see a boom in Erie, Pennsylvania. The values and the rents are not going to double or triple, certainly not, not for a very long time. And conversely, the rents aren't going to compress and the values aren't going to compress. Erie and other tertiary markets like Erie tend to have a very stable and steady trajectory. So you know, when I look at it from a predictability and stability standpoint, that's why I like our market. Eventually, we run out of available property in our area. So um, it's really checking that the demand is there for new construction if we want to go ground up or uh, what markets do we want to go to next. And so uh, we've already identified that, but we still have a little bit of runway. We're working on some deals currently to keep buying up property in Erie. The market itself, the city has 100,000 people, but the greater MSA is about 350,000 people. So there's still quite a bit of quality product out there that we can take down. Not a ton, but still enough of it that we've been able to keep our pipeline full. And, and I guess the other piece is that there's not a lot of competition. So when you're in a secondary or a tertiary market such as Erie, sure, there's competition, but with what we're doing, there's not a whole lot of other people, uh, if anybody, that syndicate routinely in our market. There's people that have done it over the years, 
but not really anybody that has a business model around it. So it's a very lonely uh, thing in our area. And that's, that's a good thing, a good place to be too. There's a few things I love about what you're saying. Number one, the primary markets today, if a large multifamily complex comes on the market, you can almost guarantee that it's an auction with 20, 30 bidders on that particular project. And so you're probably not experiencing that. So that's a great thing. You're not facing auction fever and paying too much and all of the negative consequences that come with that. But the other side of it is I'm a big believer in the laws of supply and demand. In order to maintain that supply-demand balance in your favor, there has to be jobs growth and population growth. I think about Rust Belt cities like Detroit that have lost half their population. I think about many communities in the state of Illinois that are losing population. And I wonder, is the market giving you the right balance of supply and demand, not just today, but over time? What we've seen in Erie in particular is that the population in the greater MSA has stayed the same and actually has had some growth over the past 40 or 50 years. The challenge, if you look at the city of Erie, the population has shrunk by 50,000 people, but they've only moved three miles away to to the county for better schools or better neighborhoods or whatever the case may be. So it's really looking at the greater area. So um, there's, it's, you know, somebody just looked at the, at the metrics of Erie, Pennsylvania and said, oh my gosh, over this long period of time, these people have moved away. Well, it's not as though they've moved to Pittsburgh or Chicago or, or you know Syracuse, New York. They've only moved like a couple miles down the street. It's still the same county, still the same greater MSA. It's just the, not in the city proper itself. So we've had a very stable population for pretty much the last 50 to 100 years. Um, not to say that you know, you can never predict the future. You never know if all of a sudden, just all of a sudden, you know, 50,000 people move away. I'll take my chances that they won't. Again, you can never predict the future. But I think that looking at the past, looking at what we have going on with the major employers and in industry is, it seems to be reasonable that that would continue for the future. And then as we look at our other markets, you know, you, I think it makes sense to pay attention to the history of those markets, not just what we think the data shows in terms of population growth. Because for me, I like something that's stable and predictable as opposed to maybe taking a chance. And maybe that means that we don't capitalize on a ton of upside. But at the end of the day, what we what we sell our investors on is that it's stable and predictable rather than taking a gamble. Well, for the listeners at home, Jason's part of a growing community of investors that are focused on secondary and tertiary markets. Now, you've been at it a long time. But I'm talking to a number of institutional investors that are starting to look outside the primary markets that might have an NFL football team and look at secondary and tertiary markets in search of value. And so I thought it would be important and valuable for our listener base to actually talk about investing in secondary and tertiary markets. Let's talk a little bit about some of the new markets you've identified and how you're looking at those particular markets. Are you looking at them as a macro market, or are you looking at them block by block? How are you approaching that analysis? The short answer is both. So, you know, if I see a market that I would like to get into, and I'll, I'll use Cleveland, Ohio as, as the example, I think, you know, I've grown up favoring Cleveland, all things Cleveland, uh, for whatever reason. And that, that doesn't mean anything as it relates to, to business, but a city we're familiar with, it's close by, we stay up there a lot. From a macro level, it, paying attention to the economics of Cleveland, like you know who the major employers are. For instance, Cleveland Clinic is the largest employer in Cleveland, Ohio. They continue to grow, continue to expand, continue to be the number one or number two hospital in the entire world for like two, you know, 24 or 25 years. So there's a huge amount of stability there with, with, the, um, with, with medicine, medical tourism, 
and then employment. So we know we look at these economic factors like employment and, and what industries were hit, say in 2008 or in the early 2000s during, during a recession. Feel really strongly about some of these areas that have a diverse mix of manufacturing, technology, medicine, education, uh, things like that. And then when we decide on that market, say, you know, again, a Cleveland, a Buffalo, a Pittsburgh, I think Pittsburgh's a little bit ahead of the curve economically compared to Cleveland and, and Buffalo, but those cities are not going anywhere. They certainly have, you know, they have NFL teams as well, but they're not as, you know, it's not a Los Angeles, it's not a Boston, but that's the point. You know, there's, there's people that their grandparents came over from wherever they came from, their second, third, fourth, fifth generation of Cleveland, and they're not going anywhere. And, and I think that a lot of those markets suffered as manufacturing took a hit over the last 30, 40, 50 years, but they've adapted and they've grown and that, that resiliency shows the character of the people, shows what industry can do and industry can be successful in those areas and they can adapt. But at the same time, there are markets that have gainful employment, which means that you have renters that can pay the rent. We can get into very complicated analysis and data points, but I think at the end of the day, it comes down to no matter what's happening economically, can my tenants pay the rent? Am I locked into a, a loan that isn't a bridge loan that's going to get called in three months or six months and you know, nobody's lending, well, that might be a problem. But if you're locked into some very good institutional money or, or some Fannie and Freddie money that has a long runway, well, you know, if you can service your, your bills, that's at the end of the day is what's going to matter. And I look at, hey, is this the type of market that's going to be better than it was 10 years from now than it is today? Or is it going to be worse? And again, I know that's not the biggest data point, but, it, but it's a very simple way to think about it. And I think to me, if I could answer that as yes, well, then then that's, that's a reason to move forward and start jumping in to some of the micro parts of, of that market and looking at different areas and blocks and where, where's the path of progress and where are the jobs being placed and things like that. I love that. And one of the things, just speaking personally, I have only lost money in C-class apartments. I never lost money in A-class or B-class apartments. Everyone's mileage can vary. What's been your experience? What asset class are you focused on? And often when we talk about property management, that's a bit of a misnomer because you're really managing the tenant relationship, not the property itself, which is an inanimate object. How, how does that play out for you? When I started, a large part of our portfolio was lower B and C class property. And there was probably some D class stuff that was sprinkled in there just from some portfolios that we had purchased. Um, and we learned very quickly that in the long run, you really, really obviously obviously never want to touch D-class property unless you're turning that into a B-class. I mean, there's some sort of larger play there. But I think C-class for an individual investor can be a great place to get started. I think that you know, if you're, you're talking about more of a sophisticated or institutional investor, if they buy a C-class property that's located in a B-class area, then it makes sense because then they have a chance to force the value and force the appreciation. But I think you're right. I mean, A-class is very stable, very predictable. It's, um, maybe it doesn't have as high of returns, but it's, it's that relationship between what level of work does it take from a property management and an asset management standpoint to deliver returns to the investor. And, and so I think like your garden variety B-class property to me is my, is my favorite type of investment because the tenants are maybe have a little bit better jobs. For instance, what we're going through right now with the coronavirus where so many people are being asked to work from home, 
your B-class tenants might fall under that type of job, or they may be working in healthcare and probably overworked right now, but might have a better tenant base than you will say on a, on a lower class property. So I think C-class property is great if it's in a B-class area because you can you can achieve you know a rapid improvement in cash flow and value right away. But in terms of long-term stability, for me, uh, B-class property is where it's at. No doubt the world has changed in a very small number of weeks. We went from a stable, hot market, lots of optimism to one where now people are not traveling on airplanes. We are looking at major industries hemorrhaging cash. How do you think that's going to play out as far as your tenants are concerned? Is this something that you're worried about? How, how, are you, how do you see navigating this next period? Well, first off, I would encourage any, anybody and everybody not to panic. I think with any crisis, we've all been through things before collectively, you know, individually and, and as a country, as a world. So I tend to take the big picture, big picture view, you know, is this something that's going to be sustained for a long time? Well, it depends on how we define long. We don't really know the final answers. And that sometimes is jarring to people because we're losing that control, right? You know, does this last a month or does it last a year? And, and it's probably somewhere in between that. But I, I think that as someone who self-manages, uh, I, I, we take it on a day-by-day basis. So far, we haven't had any reported cases in our area, but at the same time, it could, you know, there could be a, a thousand people that have it and they just haven't been tested or diagnosed. I think the thing is to be, to be diligent, make sure that we've got cash reserves, to be human, and that, you know, look, if, if a tenant was not able to go into work for three weeks because their job said, hey, we're shutting down, I think you have to have a heart and you have to be willing to work with people. This is a much more legitimate excuse if somebody's delinquent on their rent moving into, say, April or May. Generally, from a tenant standpoint, they're going to try and take care of their rent as the first main priority, but it's always tough to tell. So I think we look at that and say, well, gosh, you know, there, there are going to be some situations where somebody was laid off or they, they had a shortage of hours and things like that. What can we do to, to try and help them? They're still going to have to pay their rent, but do we allow them to make that up over a period of a few months as, as things get back to normal? But then from an employee perspective, again, we, I take that day by day. You know, if we get into a situation where our area is under lockdown, you know, I have 20 employees and I certainly can't pay them forever if if all of a sudden the the tenants uh, stop paying. But I think you have to realize that, you know, again, this is unprecedented and, you know, we will, we'll take it on a day by day basis, but you try and make sure that you're good with payroll and that you can, you can pay people for a while and that maybe let them work remotely uh, from a maintenance team perspective. If we start getting diagnoses in the area, I think we would send a notice to all of our tenants that they're sick. We will not send anybody into their apartment. You know, it has to be a true, true emergency. And even then, you know, we don't want to expose anybody to this potential illness. That might mean that your employees would have to work on vacant apartments or exteriors of buildings or things like that where they would limit their human contact. So, so it's unprecedented, but panicking is not going to get you anywhere. You have to be prepared and you have to think about these things logically and try and do the right thing for your tenants and your employees and, uh, and just take a community approach to it. Know that we're all going to get through this in one piece. Absolutely. And it also brings to mind questions like, how do you even handle basic procedural things from a public health standpoint? Are you sending someone in every day to sanitize the mailroom and things like that? So that right. those places of common common contact where the virus can survive for hours or days on metal surfaces are cleaned and sanitized on a regular basis. 
Right. Well, that, that's an excellent point. And I think that that's something that, you know, as an owner and as a sponsor of uh, syndication deals, that that's important for me to lead my team of employees and, and promote a sense of calm, you know, promote a sense of calm uh, amongst our tenants. You know, um, I mean, it's a very fragile time and, and people are panicking, whether that's right or wrong, but you want to make sure that people are informed. And that th- they know what your, you know, what your plan is. And then also leading investors and, 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 you know, so for our syndication deals, you know, making sure that they understand, um, you know, if things do go sideways that we are working and we have a plan in place to make sure that their investment is protected just because we manage the deal. They're all, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not their tenants as well. So I agree. I think having a plan in place, especially buildings where you have common areas, doing some some extra cleaning and beefing up that is very important and making sure that we send out notices to tenants that, hey, look, if you're experiencing symptoms, I mean, telling them the same thing that they should hear in the news, if that same message they're seeing on all ends of society, they know, hey, this is a real issue. You know, we need to exercise caution. You need to exercise prudence. And, and uh, again, we're all going to get through this hopefully sooner than later. I love it. Well, Jace, if folks want to learn more, if they want to get in touch, what's the best way? People can reach me uh, on my website at perorealestate.com. Happily connect with anybody on Facebook or LinkedIn. If they want to connect uh, further, they can drop me an email at jasonpero at yahoo.com. Or uh, I will gladly hop on a phone call if anybody wants to talk real estate investments, you know, you name it. Um, they can schedule something with me on calendly.com forward slash jasonpero. Well, thank you, Jason, for sharing your thoughts with us. And for the listeners at home, definitely get in touch with Jason. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. Talk to you again tomorrow.